0: scripture reading for tonight. So so I tell you this and insist on it the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed That however is not the way of the life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up in accordance to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and you, were, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving.
1: Let's pray and we're gonna get into this uh, passage of Ephesians 4. Uh, Lord Jesus, my, my prayer, my request, our prayer to you uh, is simple. You are the redeemer of the sexually broken, and that's how we come to you tonight. It's who we hear from, to a redeemer, to a savior, to one who is compassionate, uh, to one who restores and renews and cleanses. So we pray that you would be that and do that. I pray that you would preach liberty to the captives, and good news to us who are poor. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. All right, I want to start with an opinion. We're not in the passage yet. This is not a thus saith the Lord, this is thus thinketh been at the moment. (laughs) But here's my opinion, see whether you agree or not. I think that the status quo of how we American Christians address sexuality and even try to deal with our own sexual struggles isn't working and isn't bearing the kind of fruit that we might think it is or hope that it would. Now I gotta say this, I did not just say that I think the biblical vision of sexuality or what we do with it or sex is broken. I said the way we approach sexuality and even in this room I'm thinking about us the, the way that we approach it, and the way that we even try to deal with our sexual struggles, I think it's broken. I don't think it's delivering what we might think it's delivering, and the reason why that's a, that opinion has formed in me is because I, I see what I think is evidence all around me of that. Here's some of it. I think a lot of us, even if you're a Christian, are still crippled by sexual shame or regret. Be it the crusty shame of years and years ago, that's still there, or the new fresh stuff from this past weekend. But I think it's it's still around a lot of our necks. I think a lot of us, even in the room, feel like we can't talk to anybody else about the devilish details of our particular sexual brokenness or struggles. We can talk about it in a vague way. We can say, I struggle with lust, or I struggle with this, or I messed up again, but the devil's in the details, and it's the details that we don't feel freedom bringing into the light. I think a lot of us have already or are on the fence and about to give up the fight against distorted desires because it feels like an impossible fight. And you're like, if failure is inevitable, why expend all this energy pushing back against this stuff? Maybe not a lot of us, but maybe maybe some of us, not maybe, definitely some of us, feel dirty or ashamed simply because of the fact that we are sexual creatures and attractional people. And American Christianity has left us feeling guilty simply for being sexual beings. Now, if you agree with me, that's just my opinion, okay? If you see it the same way and you agree with me, don't you wonder if there's a better way than the way we've been walking that's left us like this? Spoiler, I mean, we're like a minute into this. You're like, well, maybe he thinks there's another way. (laughs) My point is this, what Tate read from Ephesians 4 is the other way. And it leads to a very different place than all the stuff I was just talking about. Very different place. How familiar are you with the different way, the better way that we approach? Sexuality that we even think about our own struggles with that. So here's what Ephesians 4 said, if you zoom way, way, way out, big, big, big picture before we get into the details. It says there's a way in which we can hold on to the brilliance and beauty of sex and sexuality and resist the distortions of it, the way it's been weaponized. To use the phrase, there's a way that we can hold on to the baby and get rid of the bathwater. I'm gonna come over here. (laughs) There's a way forward. In which you can be calmly clear that you are not your sexual desires, that you and they are two different things, that they are a powerful part of you, a facet of your humanity, but one of many facets, and a way in which you know that you are not your sexual past or your sexual sin now and that, that, that you would know that God himself distinguishes you from your past, you from your present struggle, that he says, this has been my beloved, my son, who I have cleaned, who I have made new, who I am now rehabilitating. This is his remaining struggle. Two different things. There's a way in which you will be increasingly able to distinguish between old you, dark sexual stuff, and new you, enlightened, healthy sexuality. And there's a way in which real, 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 real growth and progress and maturation when it comes to you, your sexuality is possible in this life, even if perfection isn't. And and an increasing contentment with Not needing perfection to come right now, yesterday, in this life, because you know that the journey that God has begun to walk with me, He says He'll finish. And so there's not a loaded gun at His head anymore saying, I prayed about this yesterday. Why am I not free from this? Why am I not better? But a hopeful contentment with a patient, longer journey of rehabilitation. That's offered to you in Ephesians 4. What's on your paper? what we're about to dig into. But before we get into it, I want to take a few minutes to just journey back through and remember what God has already told us has happened to our sexuality. Genesis 3 is one of the earliest events ever recorded in the scriptures. It's what Christians call the fall, what the the Bible calls the fall. It was the day that our tears began. It was the day that sleepless nights became a thing. It was the day that Deep, vice-grip inner turmoil became a thing. It was the day when evil jumped the species barrier into humanity, into man's thoughts, into woman's heart. That's the day, and that's the way that it happened. And chaos was unleashed, not just around us, that's bad enough, Sarah prayed about that in her prayer. The chaos around us, but it injected a world of chaos inside of us too. Um, you remember the old Allstate commercials? I think they're old. I haven't seen a new one in a long time. Mayhem, awesome campaign. I had to look up which company was advertising there. Like they did a great job of like showing us mayhem and a bad job of connecting it to Allstate. But I looked it up. It's Allstate. Buy their insurance. And mayhem went around and basically ruined awesome events. It could be some little girl's birthday party and someone walks through a plate glass window or, you know, someone's on a family trip and they end up totaling the car and destroying it. All mayhem did was breed chaos. Chaos doesn't respect boundaries. It doesn't follow rules. Disorder could care less about order. Could care less about doing things the right way. And God is up front with you and I that chaos has distorted the originally good attractions and desires that he wired into you. And every other human being who's a descendant of Adam, who's a name you're going to hear a few more times in the next few minutes, and I'll flush it out. But this chaos that was injected into humanity and into us as individuals and into our sexuality and now makes us aimless and wayward in that regard, it warps us. And so, fallen human sexuality, post-fall, from that day forward, is like a space satellite that's lost contact with mission control. It still looks super sophisticated. It still looks functional. It still appears to be doing what it was designed to do, but it has no contact, and it is slowly drifting further and further out of control and into free fall. And incapable of doing and functioning the mission and the purposes it was designed to do, and caught up in much greater gravitational pulls and orbits that it has no control over. Fallen human sexuality is like that satellite, this tiny piece of metal caught up in a massive planet's gravitational pull, pulling it deeper into free fall. Now for some of us, uh, this sexual chaos that's inside of us and around us manifests as some variety of sexual addiction, a hyper desire for sex in whatever unique IP address that has in your life and your thoughts. For others, it's a complete aversion to or fear of, even a panic of intimacy with another human being. The thought of that is averting to you. For some in this room, it's uh, desires or attractions uh, for people of the same sex, or desires or attractions for people of both genders. It's all over the place, and on and on and on, and if I didn't name your particular manifestation of it, that's in the room too, I promise you. One thing that everybody in the room has in common is that chaos has warped and affected and disconnected all of us sexually in that way. So by the so just hear, hear this. Um, What you think makes you a freak and different and have to hide and not talk about it is actually what makes you just like everybody else in this room, myself included. Welcome to rehab. We're all here limping in the door. We're all broken. We're all wayward. And because of what has happened to us, and not just 18 or 22 years ago when you were born, but what happened to you millennia ago in your ancestor, your forefather, Adam, who represents you and makes decisions that have profound bearings on your life and experience and thoughts and desires. Because of all of what that all of that happened to us, a question inevitably bubbles up in our minds, and particularly in the teen to college years, like you're right in the thick of it of when this question arises in your mind, especially if you grew up in the church, and it's this. God, why did you make me like this? And then forbid me for being like this, or curse me for being like this? From one perspective, that's an understandable question, right? I mean, I bet everybody in the room can relate to it. Whatever the this you're talking about is, why'd you make me like this? But I want you to hear this. Theologically, it's a dangerous question to ask because it means that that tomes and tomes and tomes of what your good God has said to you has gone over your head or in one ear and out the other, and we're all guilty of it. The good news is that God is marvelously patient, And like a good teacher, he is always willing to go back to square one and start again. And that's what Ephesians 4 is as well. Um, If I had to uh, summarize God's response to that question that I've asked, that probably most of you or all of you have asked, why'd you make me this way? I think what he would say is this, dear child, dear child, I didn't make you this way. Adam made you this way, his sin and rebellion made you this way, the infection of sin made you this way, mayhem is what miswired you, chaos is what misaimed you, sin is what weaponized and warped your sexuality and turned the gun on yourself and other people. I've shared this illustration with some of y'all before, but um, the Bible absolutely teaches that in one sense, our sin is somebody else's fault. You know, Jesus, Jesus alludes to this Woe to any of you who cause one of my little ones to stumble. Woe to any of you who cause one of my little ones to stumble. Adam has caused you to stumble. I'm not going to go into depth here. If you want to talk about this later, come up and ask me because we talk about it a lot. But like, look, President Biden can make a decision that absolutely has everything bearing on your life, your life or your death. He can declare war. He can draft you. He can send you. And you have no control over any of it. He represents you. He is head over you in that regard. Adam was head over you and made disastrous decisions for you. You were indeed dealt a terrible hand you were indeed born into a world where the cards were stacked against you by somebody else's decisions and failure and can we agree that the terrible hand that you and i were dealt from him we have played terribly can we agree that we have participated that we are like a chip off the old block that we also exploit and take advantage that we also rebel that we also are suspicious of god But back to the conversation. If you ask the question, God, why did you make me this way? And he said, dear child, I didn't. Adam did. I think he would also say this. I made you good. I aimed you well. And I wired you right. And I didn't throw in the towel on restoring you back to the way I made you to be. And I'm doing it all through Jesus. Now, some of y'all might be thinking, Clever slide, Ben. You you, you took that question and you kind of like did some magic tricks over here and you made us forget about it. Okay, Ben, so I don't like the language of like, God, why did you make me this way? But maybe, God, why did you allow Adam to make me this way? Why did you allow sin to affect me in this way? Which is a legitimate question as well, but it's a question that's going to take you through the entirety of the Bible if you're seriously asking it. And not just using it as a a gun pointed to heaven to not have to think about it, but if you're actually asking it and want an answer, you're also going to have to engage the question that's equally important and grows right out of that of God, why did you allow my sin to affect you in the way that you allowed it to affect you? So not just why did you let his sin affect me and warp me and make me this way, But why did you allow my sin and my rebellion affect you and hurt you in the way that it did? The Bible says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that you might become the righteousness of God. And so the Bible asks us a gentle question. It says, did you ever die on a cross, cursed and shamed publicly and naked, as a sexual sinner, under the wrath and condemnation of God. And the Bible will say, Jesus, who is God, did. And it would say to all of you who are are cleansed and free and forgiven in Jesus, my sin did that. It affected him like that. And so the question, why did you allow this to happen, is very personal to God. It's not just a question humans get to weaponize and throw up to heaven. It's a question that God asks too, that he shares with us of why did this affect me the way that it did. But I digress. Back to our point. God has the decency to tell all of us that sex and sexuality are going to be particularly complicated, challenging areas of our life. And the question for us then is, what do we do next? What do we do next? After you begin to grapple with the fact, maybe in your teen years or now, that things aren't necessarily the way they're supposed to be Maybe this isn't everybody, maybe this is a me thing, what do you do next? My question for you, I mean there's a lot of questions asked, is do you get busy trying to kind of get by? Cobble something together that's just kind of a coping mechanism to kind of make it. Sexuality and sex are not things that we can just reassemble the shattered pieces of that fell and just kind of reassemble them together any way that works, like pragmatically. My oldest son is seven, he just turned seven, Eli, and he loves Legos. And because he's seven, and now he's old enough to actually appreciate the good stuff, he got the biggest, most expensive Lego set he's gotten in his life. It was the Hogwarts Express train station and train. It took him two days to build, all day long. Because I, Anna, you might have helped him, I think mostly he did the work. The instruction manual was like a book. And a few nights ago, his roommate and brother, Noah, who's a couple of years younger than him, dropped it all. Your reaction was a little more mature than his. (laughs) (laughs) And it shattered into a thousand pieces on the floor. And Eli's floor is always strung around with Legos, just thousands of Legos, he's always playing with it. It fell into that and got mixed in with all the other Legos, so yesterday, or a couple of days ago, I walk into the room and I find Eli, who's down on his hands and knees, and he is reconstructing what was the Hogwarts Express train and train station into all these other little things, a car, a plane, other weird things, I couldn't tell what it was, none of which resembled the original gift he was given a couple of weeks ago at his birthday. What Eli did not realize about those Legos is every single piece Every single one of those thousands of pieces was specifically designed and engineered to fit with another piece in a very particular way. And if he ever wants a semblance of that train back, we or he is gonna have to painstakingly put it back together according to its original design. You're probably getting the point, it would be very, very dangerous for any of us to try to, as it were, look at the shattered pieces of our sexuality and say, let's build it back whichever way you want. Because to do so would be to completely ignore that there was a specific design and purpose and way that this stuff fit together. And to just cobble it back together any which way you want necessarily, radically diminishes what it originally was. And that is when we get to Ephesians 4, because that's exactly what the natural heart does. When I say natural, and when the Bible says Gentile, it just means somebody who hasn't met Jesus yet. Somebody who is still spiritually dead. And if that's you, God's not naming you and othering you. What he's doing is he's inviting you to see yourself the way he sees you, that you might agree with him on what you need, which is him. But the natural heart, the godless heart, the graceless heart, the unchanged human being, what their heart does with sex is what Paul describes in verse 17 through 19 on your page. And remember with me real quick that what we said last week, a person's heart is the center. It's the command central, the headquarters of all desire. Now follow this with me. Look down at your page and I'll connect these verses together. Paul is saying that the heart of a person who's not alive in Jesus has been hardened. That's the second part of verse 18. And that, this hardening of heart, closes a person's mind too. The door's shut and it closes the mind and it only lets in things that the person already agrees with and wants to hear. Self-selection bias. That's the first part of verse 18, and the combination of a hard heart and a closed mind functionally separates you from the life of God, which consequently, when you're separated from the life of the God who made you and who is life, what results from that is spiritual, deep, existential numbness, and that's verse 19 the lack of sensitivity, having lost all sensitivity, having been completely numb all the way down to their bones. And that numbness is what ultimately results in sensuality, which is the Bible's bible sounding word for addiction. It's looking to any and every created thing, sleep, food, sex, especially sex, because of where Paul goes in the, in the words after that, looking into these things and saying, I don't have a God, but you're going to be him now. You're gonna be the divine spark in my life. You're gonna be the life giver, the reintegrator of my life. You're gonna be the one that secures my future. You're gonna be the one that makes it worth getting up in the middle of the day. You're gonna be the one that takes away boredom in my life and you're electric. That's sensuality. And Paul says when you lose God, you will ask sex to be God for you. Or some other thing. But Paul says to the Christian, to the person who has experienced radical heart change, that because of the overpowering grace of God and how he changed your heart, you did not learn Christ this way. It's not who you are anymore. So pick up at least this at an initial point. One aspect of sexual healing and and rehabilitation for all of us is that we need to experience a re-education We need to unlearn all the lies that we've not only learned but deeply internalized. They're like, you know, at a muscle memory level, they're so deeply embedded in us. It's going to take a re-education, a willingness to say these things that I deeply believe and passionately hold as convictions. saying, where did that come from? And is it of God? Or is it of culture? Is it of some celebrity that I follow everything they say? Is it from my own opinions? If the Gentile or the current cultural philosophy of sexuality is that sex is merely kind of a recreational toy for an individual to indiscriminately use with anyone at any time, in any way, the kingdom kingdom philosophy of sexuality is this. Sex is a very, very specifically designed gift and tool that is made to bind one person to another, to give them both a taste of the depth of what it means to be united to Jesus. If the Gentile perspective or the godless perspective on sex is that like sex is like tape, you can use it to stick yourself to another person as many times as you want, and yes, it loses its stickiness, and I get a little bit callous to it over time, and I expect less of it over time, but I'm okay with that because it's just recreational then the kingdom perspective on sex is that it's super glue. My hobby in life is woodworking and carpentry. I built a big old workshop and shed in my backyard during quarantine so that I could do this more. And I didn't ever know this until I started getting to making tables like this, but these are a bunch of boards put end to end like this and they're jointed together and glued at the seam. And there'd be times when I was building something like that, and I glued it up, and I put it together, and the glue, I'd come back the next day, and I'm like, "Dad, gummit! I did that wrong. This is off-kilter. And so naive little me, I was like, well, these are two separate boards. They're just glued together here, so I just went to kind of pop them apart. And that's the day I discovered that, that, that glue, wood glue in particular, is harder than wood. And so you know what happened is the seam held and two of the boards ripped right down the middle. Sex is glue. And when a person who's experienced it with another person is ripped apart or doesn't show up again or isn't there for the rest of the future, it's not just this peaceful parting of ways. It's a ripping of her heart and his heart, his heart and his heart, her heart and her heart. Whatever it is, it is a ripping of two people. And this is not just Christians that talk this way. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but the New York Times Modern Love podcast is full of people who do not know Jesus, do not have any interest in God, saying the same thing. There's a particular uh, thing that I'll just, you can look it up on your own, but um, all I'll say is the title because it gets the point across. But the title of this woman's uh, podcast episode was I Gave Him Permission to Touch Me, Not to Ghost Me. She said it was so devastating when at first those playful texts after our hookup turned into more desperate texts, turned into desperation, turned into devastation. Because she thought he was different. She thought he cared. She thought he was thoughtful. But he never responded. Lewis Smeads is a theologian. He said, with sexual intimacy, there is such explosive self-giving, such personal exposure that few people can feel the same toward each other afterwards. Some of you feel like, what road is he walking down right now? Because what if your heart has already been ripped? What if it got ripped last week or seven years ago? What if you've had to learn this the hard way? Well, I want to remind you what I said earlier. All of us have to learn a lot of this the hard way. There's only one kind of human being that the Bible was written to, and it was a sexually broken human being who has made a lot of mistakes and whose heart Is broken because of it. So my question to you is not what do you do if you've messed up, but it's do you want to relearn? Do you want to experience transformation and restoration here? Well, let's spend our last seven or eight minutes together talking about that before we're done. Last week, if you weren't here, and if you were as a reminder, we said that the Bible never teaches you how to change your heart because you can't. It'd be like aviation manuals never teach you how to fly because it's the plane's job to fly. You just sit there as aerodynamics lifts it into the air. Heart resuscitation is God's business, his prerogative and only his. If you were dead, you can't resuscitate yourself. If your heart is dead, you can't resuscitate it. But it's his specialty and his delight and his promise ancient promise to give you a heart of flesh and to take out your heart of stone and to make you more human again. So he resuscitates hearts. Be clear on that, friends. Not you learning better techniques to not be lustful anymore. He changes hearts. He makes people alive. But listen, there's another piece to it. Salvation is a restorative event that leads to a restorative process. Heart transformation or heart resuscitation is an instantaneous event that leads to a gradual process. You could say resuscitation in the hospital always leads to rehab. An instantaneous moment where you were dead, but now you're alive. Or in this passage's terms, you were a slave, but now you're free. You were alienated from the life of God, but now you are family with a seat at the table and a room in the house. And your father's love all for you. That's the instantaneous change. The others, it's dabbled throughout the passage. Being sealed with the Holy Spirit is an instantaneous change, regeneration, verse 30. Verse 32, justification, being forgiven in Christ once for all. Chapter five, verse one, you being adopted as a son or a daughter, you belonging, you having a place at a table was an instantaneous change that God acted in your life. Verse 2 in chapter 5, Christ giving himself up for you as a sacrifice to cleanse you, as atonement, it's an instantaneous event. And all of that leads to a lifelong process. And by the way, I should say, all in the background of this passage is the instantaneous event that you're new now. If Any man or woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone and the new has come like an explosive burst of resurrection. You're new now. That happened, that ship sailed. You're not trying to become new. You already are. So hear me, the things that are gradual that are a part of a process and part of a journey are things like stopping certain habits and learning new habits. Trying to increasingly get control over your thoughts instead of being controlled by your thoughts or desires. That's a gradual process, not an instantaneous event. Learning how to identify and name and resist the lustful desires of your heart and how to hold the baby and say, no, this is a good desire. This is part of God making me a sexual being. This is a good thing to hold on to. That takes time, too. And the reason I'm driving this home is Don't you also feel like, God, I prayed about this. Why do I still feel these attractions or these desires? I asked you to take this away. I still feel just as tempted by this as I did three years ago. And we mistake the gradual for the instantaneous. And we think, well, I must not be a Christian or God must not care, or this must not be a plausible, realistic ethic of sexuality because it's impossible. It all comes because we misunderstand the difference in what is instantaneous and what is gradual. Confusions abound there. Here's an illustration to kind of draw this out. A lot of these um, refugees you've seen on the news lately from Afghanistan have started landing in the U.S. and sometime sooner than later they'll start the process of becoming citizens. And there will come a day where they'll come in a room like this and they'll raise their right hand and they'll say an oath and a judge or somebody will declare them to be citizens of the United States with all the rights and privileges thereof, but it'll take a lifetime, won't it, for them to feel like Americans, to feel like they fit here, like they belong here, like this is home, and there's gonna feel like a great tension there in the near term as they walk down that road which is a very necessary process of assimilation and acclimation and adjustment and learning the new ways that fit their new status their new identity and this process of acclimation will absolutely involve them putting away old habits and customs that don't fit life here and i don't i I don't know i mean it it might be like well you don't need to store all your cash under the mattress because no one's going to probably break into your house and steal it all at gunpoint. We put it in a bank. There's new ways to learn that or whatever else. Like you don't have to be worried about talking to the, to, to the police or the judges in, in your little village because like in this little town, they treat people well. I don't know what it is, but it's a whole new series of customs and ways of life that they're gonna have to relearn. There is an instantaneous moment where their status changed and then a lifelong process of actually becoming at home. Paul says this process of rehabilitation and assimilation for you as it pertains to our sexuality, growing into this new life that you already possess, at least involves relearning who you actually are. You can't skip that, right? You can't skip that. So there's got to be some kind of practice in your life, whether it's coming to RUF or your deep involvement in your local church or you and a buddy getting a drink every week so just talk about this or whether you tell your accountability group stop just asking me how many times I messed up and start asking me if I think about myself the way Jesus thinks about me. There's got to be practices in your life that reintroduce you to who you already are regularly. It also involves this process of putting off and putting on. The process of stopping this and starting that, putting off this and putting on this, is not what leads to heart change. It's what reinforces and exercises a heart that's already alive. It's the cardio. It can't resuscitate your heart, but it can train and condition your heart. And listen to this. It's so practical. The Bible's ethic of moral improvement is not stop doing bad stuff, y'all stop looking at porn, stop masturbating, stop doing this, stop giving voice or indulgence to those desires. It's always a put that off so that there's room for this good thing to grow. Tear this down, bulldoze this so we can build this. Verse 25, put away falsehood. Just because, because falsehood's bad, because lying's bad. No, so that you will be able to learn how to build your friends up, how to use your mouth not for gossip, but for encouragement. For helping them, for burden lifting. Put away stealing. Why? Because bad use Stealing's bad no. So that you can get a job and learn to be responsible. And so that when someone comes to you and says, I need help, you have money to give it to them. That's the Bible's ethic. Put away crude joking, verse 4 in chapter 5, and filthy talk. Why? Because they're just naughty and you shouldn't do it? No so that there might be soil and oxygen in your heart for gratitude to God to begin to grow out of that. And instead of sitting on the front porch grumbling about your professor or your church or this ministry or whatever, you sit there and you're like, how kind is God that he let us be a part of something like this? Cut the weeds out so that the healthy trees and plants can grow. That's the ethic. So when it comes to sexuality and sexual immorality, which Paul says, not even a hint of which is to be tolerated. The weeds can't grow at all. What's supposed to grow in place of that? I mean, this is where we need to get coffee or y'all need to get lunch together or go home tonight and talk about this. Use your imagination and your creativity. I'll just give you two or three ideas to get your mind going. But it could be fight to put away those warped and errant desires so that you can actually begin to experience the Spirit's presence in your battle, and that He actually is there, and He actually will help. Maybe another way, a reason to put that off, is so that you can begin to have space and time to realize there's something deeper beneath these particular lusts that I want to understand. I want to understand why is this the place I trip? Or, guys, it could be I want to put away sexual immorality. I want to put away porn so I can finally face the fact that I'm terrified to get to know a woman and the otherness of a woman and to respect her and hold her in regard and and listen to her and love her and serve her. I don't know where to start with that, and so I want to have a shortcut to intimacy and relationship here. Put that away so that you can begin to face the cowardice that's keeping you from them or women to men you see the Bible's ethic, put this off so that you can put this beautiful thing on, so that you can walk with God. Here's where I want to end, friends, a story about downtown and inconvenience we've all experienced. Um, if you and I have hung out in College Square this fall, you've heard me crumble and complain, right? I'm like, oh, I couldn't park here because all the parking spots are taken up. They've been working here for two years, digging up College Ave, repaving it, digging it back up, repaving it. When you don't know the extent of the damage that existed under that street, you'll always be upset about how long and circuitous and nonlinear and inefficient the process of rebuilding it is. What happened is the oak trees and the ginkgo trees there, the roots had grown so deep into the sewer system and utilities that it had ruined everything. And so they're not just repaving a road, I found out. They went 10 feet down and are rebuilding everything. Sewers, pipes, plumbing, electricity and then they put the sidewalk on top, and the asphalt, and they're going to put some new trees down there. When you and I begin to wake up to how intricate and complicated and complex our sexual brokenness is, we will begin to more patiently walk the road of sexual rehabilitation with the Spirit of Jesus. And we'll say, instead of, why aren't I different yet? You'll be like, I get it. I get it. This gonna be a long road of healing. I'm going to need the church. I'm going to need other people involved in my life. I'm going to learn as I go. I'm going to learn with you. But I realize this isn't like a weekend warrior project. This is the work of a lifetime. And friends, what he is building in you is absolutely fantastic and human and good and divine and beautiful. A playground where life's going to happen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us, help us, because we can talk and we can listen and we can try to remember and take notes and try to get it into our heads, but you, Holy Spirit, if you're not at work pressing these things deep down into our minds and our bones and out in the way that we live, we're really up the creek without a paddle. We really do need your help. I pray that tonight would be the night that you um, just move us forward, open our eyes, And give us hope that we can change because you are good and you are intent on changing us. We pray this.